This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over and Undrila Mukherjee. I'm so excited for you to be here because your new book is out. It is a trade paperback. It is a debut. We love trade paperback debuts. But I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself and the Dream Builders before we really get into our conversation. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm Oyam Trilla, and I grew up in India, mm-hmm. in several big cities, but mainly in Calcutta, which is now called Kolkata. And I moved to the U.S. 20 years ago, and I've been living in Grand Rapids, Michigan since 2011, where I teach creative writing in the Department of Writing in Grand Valley State University. And this novel, which was in the making for about six or seven years, Dream Builders, um, has gone through several drafts. It is a novel set primarily in India, but America looms large over it. It's set in a fictional city called Rishipur, which I wanted to create to epitomize certain things, paradoxes and contradictions that I saw in India um, over the last 20 years, every time I went back. It deals with the lives of 10 characters. The chapters are from different characters' points of view, but their lives are interlinked. One of the main characters, Manika, lives in the U.S. She's a creative writing professor. So it all takes place over one summer in 2018. So we get that sort of American perspective because the novel has a lot to do with American cultural influence and imperialism, especially in developing countries and sort of the modernization of India and the problems that that brings. But ultimately, I think it's about the people and their relationships. It is absolutely about the people. And Rishibad is... I will say it's a character in its own right. Not every city is a character, but if you live in a place like New York or Los Angeles or Chicago, the city is its own living, breathing kind of place. So how do you start by creating a city? What are the things you're looking for first? I have to say this is inspired by a real city. Okay. And um, I, after I moved to the U.S. 20 years ago, my parents relocated from a Calcutta to this city called Gurgaon, which is to the west of Delhi. It's known for its real estate developments, and it has over 40 malls and um, many um, headquarters, Indian headquarters of global corporations. And it, it's just a lot of concrete, uh, a lot of buildings, high-rise uh, residential complexes and so on. And every uh, summer when I would go and visit my parents for several weeks at a time, I would observe this city and participate in it. And one of the interesting things is that on one hand, it was getting very Americanized. All of India, you know, open India, um, American culture is sort of um, very influential. So you would see all these signs for KFC and McDonald's and, um, you know, all of that. But if you drove a little bit away from the city, there were still the villages and farmlands. And there were a lot of power cuts. I remember power going off like every five minutes when I was watching a movie one summer. And so there was some basic infrastructural issues. There was no electricity. Um, There was not enough, obviously. And so, again, this was this felt like um, a city that epitomized um, and, you know, captured all the paradoxes of contemporary India. It was definitely an inspiration, but I didn't want to write about a real city because, first of all, I think people have already written about, you know, books set in Gurgaon. 
And I didn't want to be held to, you know, this wasn't exactly accurate. So there was a practical reason. But also, I really love places. I love reading fiction that is set in places. I love travel writing. I don't write fantasy like Tolkien did, creating Middle Earth. But the idea of creating your own city with it, with your own map and your own, you know, um, social structures is just really fascinating to me. So once the inspiration was there, I mean, I was seeing these things for myself. And then it's just about take, letting your imagination take off and really exaggerate and embellish mm-hmm. the things you want to. And also, I wanted to include everything in one city. <laughs> you did. <laughs> the classes, all of that. I'm sure it exists, but it was not possible for me to see that in three, four or seven months. Right. Part of it was imagination. So let's talk about your cast. Let's talk about where you start. I mean, yes, you're a creative writing professor in the Midwest, in the United States. You've been here for a while, but this is not autofiction. This is, this is you figuring out what kind of story you want to tell. But how did we get here? It's interesting because the process is when I think about it, sometimes I don't know how I got through it. <laughs> I, did, I did have Manika first. And um, her vantage point and perspective are similar to mine, although she is a very different character from me. But that was intentional. Changes, but of course, she um, lives in the Midwest. And I should also add that Rishipur is um, a contrast and a sort of foil to the Midwestern town that she lives in, Heathersfield. And I had the places um, early, you know, early on. And Heathersfield is this very quiet, sedate, beautiful, idyllic town, college town. So Manika lives here and she hasn't gone back to India for several years and she finally goes. Um, you know, after her mother's passed away, which Mm -hmm. you learned very early, and things have changed. Her parents now live in this new city and that she's never been to. And six years is a long time to be away from a country that is constantly developing and where the economy was changing. And so the city has changed, the, the country has changed, and she's struck by it. So that I had. But then originally, the story was going to be about Manika and maybe her mother and old property in Calcutta and new property and alternating chapters. And it really wasn't going well. Um, I did have the first chapter. I had her go to this party and meet meet up with an old high school person, Ramona, and all the other characters that you meet at the party, Ashok and, you know, Salil. That chapter I had in 2016. I had a prologue and the prologue was an advertisement for this beautiful apartment complex and condos. I had the prologue and I had, which was almost fantastical and mythical, this apartment complex. And it's actually not the one that is in the book right now. It's it's, it's Jannat. It's Jannat, uh, which means heaven in Hindi. And it's basically the apartment complex that a lot of people all over India were investing in, including Manika's parents. And I had the first chapter and I took it to the Sewani Writers Workshop I remember it being workshopped and people were very excited about the book and they said you should keep writing and many of the themes were already um, apparent and I wrote a lot from the mother's point of view and her point of view completely different story I was on sabbatical in India for about seven months in 2018 towards the end of my sabbatical I showed it to my writers group and they were not impressed oh said uh, not the first chapter but you know later chapters and they said it's not really going anywhere and they were right because I didn't really have a plot and so I abandoned all of it except the first chapter oh wow okay okay 
And I started again on 15th April, 2018. I remember I started again with this new structure where every character would get their own chapter. Mm -hmm. Nothing from the mother, nothing from the past, all just one summer. I was really inspired by this Hindi movie I had seen It's called Suraj Ka Satma Ghora by Sham Benegal. It's like an art house movie, but it's um, based on a Hindi novel. And the point of view there was what really fascinated me because you didn't know whose point of view you were going to get next. It could be, you know, it could be a minor character and then would tell the story in the next scene. I was really fascinated by that point of view and I always wanted to write a novel like that. And so I started doing that. And then it was, you know, I don't want to reveal whose chapters you get, but it it felt easier to me because there were so many and I knew whose chapters were going to be interesting. And they do come from very different backgrounds, different, you know, socioeconomic classes, different genders. Nobody is native to Rishipur. They've all come there. There were some people whose chapters were removed in the final draft. When, as I was revising, it evolved a lot. And one really important character who I'm not going to name, whose chapter wasn't even there. And I don't think this book would be published without that person's chapter. So, Oh, wow. Okay. So when we turn off the recording, I am going to ask you about that because <laughs> I'm having a moment. For me as the reader, I mean, I whipped through this book. One of the things that all of your characters share, regardless of socioeconomic status, is Everyone's constantly talking about how expensive everything is. And there's a scene towards the end, and I'm, I'm not going to tell people, I'm not going to give them too much context, but a couple of characters are buying sweets because someone's sibling has done something. And the idea that they don't have to think about how much they're spending, they can just go wherever they want and they can have it wrapped and they can buy many, many things instead of just the one thing. I mean, that's a big moment. I was a little surprised that everyone was as pressed as they are, Hmm. you know, because it is this new city. It is this place where you can go and sort of make your own space. And I think that's me just sort of taking the American dream because Hmm. as you know, you've been here for 20 years. This is a myth that we cling to very tightly, especially in literature, this idea that you can make yourself and find your place and everything else. And everyone here seems to be really Hmm. pinched because they bought into a version of that dream and it's not quite working for anyone. Yeah, I mean, there are people it's working for. They're just not in the book. There's the real estate developer, for instance, whose concerns are, yes, my buildings are not being made, but he's not really worried about money yet. There are people, Manika, um, as um, I think uh, I think it's fair to say that they invested in a condo that has not materialized. And he goes to court and at one point and he sees these other people who don't seem as concerned because they've invested in several of them. It was just one less now. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so, so there are people who um, are not that impacted, but right. they might be. Right. They might be next, you know, next year. The economic situation I do find is volatile. And especially when you're um, a professional rather than very you know um a business person and their situations are such that i mean ramona is ramona manika's friend that she meets in the first chapter is actually um is not worried about money husband has started um has a startup he's an entrepreneur and they have a very good life 
but we don't know what's happening behind the scenes. I did choose people, of course, selective mm-hmm. who were in for surprises. <laughs> they surprise us. And right. also, uh, people who maybe overreached, right? They wanted more than they needed, you know? And so um, I think Manika's dad's being pressed is because he has he is retired. And, um, you know, retired middle-class people who are not getting a pension from the government, they they can feel pinched because there's no social security. There's no Medicare. It was interesting watching that sort of dance between Monica and her dad, where he's saying, well, I want to leave you something. And she's like, I can take care of you. I can I can send you money. I can take care of you. This is fine. And, and he's sort of saying, well, no, you're my child. <laughs> I don't want you to worry about it. But also, she's not thinking about moving back to India. She's staying in the States. And one of the sort of recurring themes that pops up is the idea that, you know, she lives alone in the States. And everyone's kind of like, wow, that's a choice. But it's clear that she's also not of this place. And it's not just because her parents are transplants. She really has her own way of seeing things. And I don't know if I would say it gets her into a little bit of trouble, but it's fun seeing this place through her eyes and trying to understand sort of what's going on. And then these other characters pop up and you're like, oh, that's not what I was expecting. Yeah, Yeah, that's, yeah. I was definitely going for that. I mean, Manika Mm -hmm. is, it it seems sort of tempting to think that she's sort of me because she's from from the US. And definitely her perspective of being inside and outside is... Mm -hmm. She's also she's very opinionated and she's very sure of things, except what her book is going to be about. And she needs other people to 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 point out very basic truths to her. You know, that was my way of grappling with um, very complicated questions that mm-hmm. it's really impossible to know the answers to. You know, people surprise you all the time. Places surprise you. They are not what you expect. She has a conversation with Ashok where she says, when we were growing up, we didn't expect America to be like this, the way this field is, you know. Um, India has become America, and America, her America has become what she used to think of India at one point of time. That cultural role reversal is very interesting. That's a growth for her. That's a journey for her, where she's going to have to figure out some things. Right. And for people who haven't yet read The Dream Builders, can you just explain what you meant when you said America is what Ma- uh, Monica thought India was, because I think that's a really important point. And it's clear in the book. I mean, people who read the book will totally understand, but there might be a couple of listeners right now who are saying, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) So can we explain that? Yeah, absolutely. When I was growing up in India in the 80s and 90s, when we first had cable TV, um, the first American shows I remember watching were The Bold and the Beautiful and Santa Barbara. Okay. Prime time. They were broadcast at prime time, 9 p.m not daytime. And my ideas of America, and not just mine, but many of us, were culled from Archie comics and these soaps and Hollywood movies. And later on, the YA novels that I discovered with, you know, high school, we really thought, I think there was an assumption, an expectation. And I I know a lot of friends still think that, that America is the glamorous, sexy, fast-paced, life, bohemian, somewhat debauched, you know, I would not have associated, you know, the, the, the term family values with America. America was New York. America was hot. America was big cities. And then I've been living in the Midwest in, in a mid-sized city since 2011. And um, 
it's very quiet compared to when I go back and visit Delhi or Bombay. People, many people are very religious. They go to church. They spend a lot of time with their families. They're very family oriented. I find that a lot of Michiganders don't leave or they come back to be close to their families. And this was the opposite of what I had assumed naively, mm. of course, but we are naive when we think about places that we haven't been to and we're just getting it from pop culture. And on the other hand, I when I visit India, when I was visiting India all these years, I would see this Americanization, the big city bustle, but also a lot of social changes. You know, talking to friends, social media posts, and just watching the news, even like Bollywood movies in the last 10 years. You know, you uh, it's not just about growing wealth, but also um, a certain kind of bohemianness, you know, are more seen much more sexually liberated than what has been represented historically in in narratives about India. A lot of people were having affairs. There was a lot of infidelity. The positive side is that you know single women found it much find it much easier to live alone independently without having to be interrogated by their landlords. Easier to rent apartments. There were also key parties that I was hearing of, and you know partner swapping parties. And I'm not judging. This is all very exciting for the books and for life. But it just seemed that the ro- the roles had been reversed. And none of this is a monolith, right? The Midwest, America is not a monolith. Um, India is not a monolith. Everything I've described to you is just concentrated in the very cosmopolitan urban uh, population. You know, all of this prosperity, all of the westernization, uh, all of the brands are co- as distant to a vast majority of the rural population as America is. So it's obviously on the surface only. It's not all over. But this was what I was experiencing firsthand. And this was what I was witnessing. And this is my life in the Midwest, you know. And it's uh, it seems very quiet. Um, I don't know a lot of single. I'm, I'm single, but I don't know a lot of single women like me living here. When I go to India, I meet a lot of them. And so... This role reversal is was very fascinating to me. And that's why Heathersfield and Rishipur are these two parallel cities. And people keep asking Manika, and you know, how many malls do you have? And she's like, there's one at the end of town. And and of course, it's a fictional city. It's not based on where I live. It's just, it's sort of, you know, I made it up. And they're shocked, you know, um, to hear that there's no, there's no Bloomingdale's, Ramona asks her. It's about the idea that you don't really know a place. Until you've lived there, until you visited a lot, until you're immersed in its life, just like people, places mm-hmm. are. I I just think I was trying to get to that idea. When did you decide you wanted to write fiction? I decided a long time ago. I didn't really write it for many many years, and the decision may have been sort of just a foolish hope, you know, a teenage hope. I I always loved to read. Of course, as a child, I was surrounded and I was immersed in books. I remember reading a book, um, an American book. I just discovered a lot of YA novels. And I was reading, it's called Walk Through Cold Fire uh, by Sin Porsche Lunsford. And um, it, 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 won an, it won a prize for best first novel. I read it when I was in high school or between school and high school and college. And um, this was about high school students too. And the main character was in high school, was about, a biker gang and a lot of teenage angst. I remember reading that book and thinking, 
that it was first person, very voice driven thinking that, oh, I could I could write a book someday because I have all this angst and I, you know, love language. And there was something that resonated, even though it was such a different world, just because maybe the character and I were the same age and it felt like journaling, but journaling with fictional goals. And that was one moment. And then I remember being in an English class in high school and uh, 12th grade, actually, we were reading The Mill the Mill on the Floss by George Eliot. And I announced to the teacher that I could have written a better ending. Um, <laughs> it's a great book, but, you know, all the Victorian novels, sometimes they have very contrived and melodramatic endings. And I was really disappointed by the ending. I don't want to spoil it for people, but it just seemed so contrived. And I remember the look of shock on the teacher's face because she probably thought I was so arrogant and presumptuous. Um, I don't know how I would have ended it, but I remember thinking that I could have I could have come up with a better ending. I was I was writing a lot, but not fiction. You know, I was writing a lot of nonfiction mm-hmm. things. I went to England for university mm-hmm. and I for the first time when I was there, I took post-colonial classes. As an undergraduate in India, I was in a very good English department, and I'm sure it's changed by now. But at the time, the undergraduate curriculum had nothing from India, no post-colonial literature. It was all British, you know, old English, middle English. Um, I loved all of that, but there was nothing post-colonial. And then I went and I was reading these books and, you know, um, not just Indian books, of course, Salman Rushdie and Amitabh Ghosh and, you know, um, but also... Aikoyarma and Petals of Blood and, you know, The Beautiful Ones Are Not Yet Born, all these great books coming out of Nigeria and Ghana and Chino Achebe um, and George Lamming, the Caribbean writers, uh, Jean Rees. And I know the big one for me was Autobiography of My Mother by Jamaica Kincaid. Right. I didn't just read those books. It was I was taking classes with Otto Kiesen, this post-colonial scholar who's who's now at Stanford. And we were talking about these books and discussing them and critiquing them. And I was being introduced to post-colonial theory. And for the first time, I felt like I was reading not just for entertainment, but that these writers were writing about my life. They were urban writers writing in English, which was a comfort zone for me. Uh, and they were obviously sort of part of the elite in their country. They Many of them lived overseas, you know, but they were capturing and writing about my, the issues that I was concerned with in, in a way that I had not been introduced to before. And that, that resonated with me. And I think that is when I felt like I, re- I really needed to write books too. And I could write books someday, uh, novels and fiction, because... I just felt like that was just capturing reality in a way, you know, in a dramatic way. So we've talked about your influences, but can we talk about craft for a second? Can we talk about the mechanics of how you write? I mean, we know why. Are you working off of notes or are you just sitting down and letting your characters lead you through? I I I don't think I feel that sort of magical inspiration that some writers feel where books write themselves. It's really been quite laborious. So like I mentioned already, I wrote and then I threw away everything and then I started. The structure is very, very important to me. If I don't know what the structure is going to be, it's really hard. And so for this book, it was, you know, the structure is very ambitious. 
and I think pretty unusual um, because it's not linked stories. No, it's not. Oh, no, it's not. It is a novel. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not disparaging. I love linked mm-hmm. stories. But um, a lot of people are like, oh, they're linked stories. And I'm like, no, they're no. really yeah, I love linked stories too. I mean, I love short stories in general, but I, and I do really love linked story collections. This is not a linked story collection. This is a novel. <laughs> Let's just be clear. I teach and I have my job, which is mm-hmm. uh, as a college professor, which is extremely time consuming, rewarding, but also very demanding. And especially during the pandemic, we were teaching extra classes and learning how to teach online. And um, and I have a lot of students and I have um, I give them a lot of written feedback on their work. and so. It's just very hard for me to find the time. And I it's it's hard for me to switch from, you know, being on my computer all day grading and then, okay, now I'll write on my computer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I did write a lot in longhand. Most of the pages that I threw away were actually written in longhand. I don't know what that says about the longhand process. Um, but I enjoy the process of writing in longhand. It's just very comforting. You can sit anywhere and you don't have to look at the screen. Um, but it is a lot faster to to write on the computer. I think I don't really have a clear process. Mm-hmm. You know, I do not outline the novel. I did not outline it ahead of time. The first draft was very difficult because I didn't know what I was doing. And I always think of it as a puzzle, creating a puzzle from scratch versus you have the puzzle and now you just have to put the pieces in different places. You know, once I had the first draft, I felt like it was a lot easier is I kept thinking of new things. I don't think I mentioned this to you. There was this thing that happened when I went to India on my sabbatical in 2018. Um, I already had Heathersfield and Rishipur, right? I don't think this is too much of a spoiler because you hear about it very early in the book, mm-hmm. the condominiums that are coming up. I went there and this was a realist place for real estate development where everybody was investing, everybody was buying property, buying a condo. But then in 2018, I went there and there was a slight change in the tone because there were a lot of people, including my parents, who had invested in homes that were not being completed. And, you know, these had not been built and people had paid the down payment. A lot of people were paying uh, monthly installments along with their rent, but the constructions were not finished. And this was a problem not only for the investors, but also for other people whose lives are sort of dependent on these constructions, right? And at this time, one day, I was on my way from Gurgaon to Delhi. And on the wall, I saw this huge sign which said, Trump has arrived, have you? And of course, he was the president at the time, but presidency and the man have very little to do with the book. And I suspect it had very little to do with the advertiser's motives. It's a brand, right? Mm -hmm. It was an American brand. That's what I found really interesting is that, you know, it it was this American brand name that was being used to sell products and what about it would be, would draw the consumers in. And the most interesting thing about that sign was not the word, not the name of the person. It was the word arrived, you know. Because it just sort of this tantalizing, challenging question. He's arrived, have you? You know, and it just sort of embodies all the aspirational qualities of Rishipur for me. Because what does it mean to arrive? You know, is it is it fame? Is it wealth? Is it status, social status? That's not the only reason, the only significance of the word arrival. 
it also is a physical act. You actually arrive in a place. It's it's um it's a point at the airport where you arrive. All the characters in Rishipur have come from elsewhere. This sign was a defining moment for me, seeing that sign. And then it just helped me with the plot. So I think it's just part of the process is I would see things or hear things, and I still do. Um, before I had finished the novel entirely, I would walk around campus and I would suddenly think of something or hear some music and it would remind me of something. And then I would just sneak it into the book and it just kept growing and growing from, you know, and that's how it became less and less like linked stories and more and more like a novel. Talking about Arrival makes me think of how you got published because this is not your average story. You submitted your manuscript about change and home and family and Arrival in an open submission to your publisher, Tin House, which isn't typically how the process works. So can we talk about that for a second? Absolutely. You know, I wrote I wrote my first novel. This is not my, the first novel I've written. I wrote one when I was um, doing my PhD at Houston, and then I was doing a fellowship at Emory. And um, I uh, sent it out to a lot of agents. A lot of agents read it in England and the US, and they said, We'll we'll read your next book, you know, um, very kindly. And uh, and looking back, that was good. That was a good decision. I knew that it was possible to have a lot of agents read your book and your full manuscript and not not want to represent it. I had been through that process and I knew that was possible. With this book, I really finished it last year. You know, I I finished uh, revising it last summer. That was the final big revision. And then I was querying, I had started the process of querying in July, August, and agents were requesting the manuscript and reading it. And it was going a little slowly because Mm -hmm. I've talked to those agents now, so I know that they were pretty backlogged, especially after the pandemic. And they really swamped and some of them had the book, but they hadn't had a chance to read it. And I hadn't queried my current agent um, and I, I knew this was, you know, this was going to take a while. It's also a big book. And um, and some people even warned me, you know, I'd love to read your book, but I'm going to take time. And so I was like, okay, that's fine. But then I saw this Tin House open submission call. I think this was the first time they were doing this. Mm-hmm. I think so. They have a couple of open submission calls a year, one for nonfiction, I think, and one for um, the debut novel and maybe one for short stories. I'm not sure. But this was the first time they did it for for this, for the novel. It was for unagented authors, uh, for a debut novel. And um, by the way, they just have their new one, new the call for submissions now. They just wanted the first chapter. And I thought it can't hurt. I mean, they are one of my dream publishers. I really love the work that they do. And I I don't even know how wise it was because there were so many people, you know, reading it, interested in reading it. But I thought, well, let me just send one chapter. And one of the reasons is because I thought if they turn it down, I'll know that my first chapter needs some work, maybe, you know, because no editor or publisher had seen it yet. Right. And I didn't even like have the sort of rejections you have where you think, okay, this is what I need to do with the book. And this was really sort of a test (laughs) for me, for my book. And I, I really forgot to put it out of my mind because I was focused on the agents. And I um, thought, what chance do I have? There are so many writers submitting their work, you know. But everything happened very quickly after that. I submitted on the first day of this year. Um, it was a two-day window only. Mm-hmm. First day, and I sent it on the first. And then a few weeks later, they asked for the rest of my manuscript. And I was still not feeling very, it was like, 
okay, the first chapter is is good. The first chapter is working. I don't need to change the first chapter. That's all I thought at that point um, when I sent them the rest. But then I got an offer from them in the middle of February. And then I went back to the agents and I said, oh, I got the offer, you know, and then they were like, oh, we'll read it. And, you know, they started reading <laughs> and uh, which I mean, I really totally understand how swamped are the number of queries they get. Um, I hadn't queried my agent yet, but then I did. Um, I was I queried a few new people, too. And she was and I and she was super excited. I got some I got a few offers of representation, but I just I just wanted to work with Jessica. Uh, and SLL. Then she helped me navigate the book deal contract. And it was, it's just been a whirlwind since then. But I have to say that sending to Tin House was just an excellent decision because of the timing. I mean, maybe this would have all unfolded in a slightly different way, but I just think the timing for the book is great. The fact coming out so soon, the fact that it's coming out you know, where events are politically, socially, economically, with the people mentioned in the book, I just think that, you know, with the changes happening around the world and globalization and, you know, I, I just with, with elections every in every country, you know, coming up, I just think that this is this is a great time rather than three years down the line. It really, it feels very, it's not just of the moment. I just, I had a lot to relate to in this book. I just, and you know, here I am not in India. And uh, I just, I think you do a lot of very cool things with the characters. I think you do some really interesting stuff with story and plot that we are totally not getting into in this conversation. Um, but there's a lot of very, very smart, interesting things that happen in this book. And some of them are very unexpected. And some of them you're like, oh, don't open that door. Don't open that. Oh, don't. You opened that door. Okay, fine. But did anything surprise you? Like, what did you learn writing this novel? I know it's not your first, but clearly you did something very differently from whatever earlier book that is sitting in your drawer was. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That book was not, I'm so glad it wasn't published. You know, that taught me how to write a novel, though. It it, it helped me learn along with, you know, all years of teaching and everything else that's happened but I was not good at plot that was my thing I was very good at describing things and places and travel writing and um, I think I'm good at character development I think that's what I would say I was I found easier plot was something that I had I thought I was not good at I, I found it daunting I found it daunting to read you know to to write something where people would actually feel like I don't know what's going to happen and I want to know what's going to happen and then be surprised by what's happening. And now when I look at this book, I'm kind of astounded by how I managed to build, create and build and develop this plot. And I, I look at blurbs by people like Kevin Wilson. Right. <laughs> marvel of a structure, feat of storytelling. And I'm like, oh, that happened somehow. And I honestly, I think that just what's what surprised me is how the structure worked. It was a risk and it was very ambitious. And I thought people might think it's stories or people might think it's too many characters. But the way it not only came together, but it sort of inspired me and made me, gave me all these ideas. You know, something would happen and I would like, oh, this has happened in Pinky's life. 
um, Pinky's um, chapter, by the way, and I'm just saying this has been published in Ecotone uh, a couple of years ago, a modified version. Um, something happens there. And I thought maybe seven months later, I thought, oh, this is what needs to happen there, which will really impact this other character later. And those things just honestly happened. I mean, I don't even know where they came from, like in random Eureka moments. And it's because there are so many characters. It's because there are so many subplots. And it's because you have those different chapters and the structure, you know, um, and the scaffolding that happens. Even now, when I when I look at when I was doing my final copy edits, I was like, well, this conversation that Ashok is having with Manika in the first chapter, and he this is how he's acting is going to really be, become a big deal later. You know, like everything, the way it, I just thought, oh, this needs to happen. Oh, that can happen. It was just all the connections that I found and was able to make is what has really surprised me because I really didn't think that I would be able to do that. I thought it was going to be a much, um, for lack of a better word, simpler book. And, and not so complex uh, and not so layered. And it's a page turner. I can't stress that enough. It's layered, it's complex. The characters are great. They are unforgettable. A lot happens, but wow, it moves. And I think that's really important too, because you are covering a lot of ground. You're making a lot of points about globalism and consumerism and capitalism and all of its many forms and arrival and success and all of these things. And I could not put it down. I just couldn't. I, I, it's so satisfying. It's so satisfying. Um, but hey, you know, you're publishing in January. And some folks might have as a New Year's resolution, I'm going to write my novel this year. Finally, I'm going to do this. Do you have any advice for folks like you who might not have the time or think I really, really should do this? Absolutely. Um, get started. Don't just think about it. Just start. Just start. And then take your time, you know, just just write as much as you can when you can. Um, and take your time because the first draft, the second draft, the first impulse is may not be the best one, you know. And if you give it time, and I don't just mean number of years, but I just mean space. And if you keep thinking about it, let it simmer, let it brew. It's really important to get a draft down. You know, it's really important to get a draft down, even if it's nothing like your next draft, to have it in front of you, the characters, the plot, you know, um, you can then start to see it and revision it and, you know, and um, chip away at it. But I would just say, start ASAP. Nobody needs to see it. Nobody needs to know about it. I would also say, don't talk about it too much. That's just me. Because... Every time someone asked me about it when it was in progress, I felt this just deflated and completely exhausted. I think because I felt guilty that I should be writing right now. And I also felt like, what if I never finish it? What if it's no good? It was all that anxiety. It could be a secret project if that's what works for you. But don't put it off, you know, and even, even if this is not the book that gets published, it will still be very helpful. But also, you know, I tell my students this a lot because some of them, I mean, many of them have written books already. They have manuscripts. You don't need to think about publishing it next month or next year. 
wait until and I and I made that mistake when I was younger. I queried before I was ready. You know, I didn't revise enough, you know, and um wait until you really love it. And you feel like, okay, I have done everything I could. So those two things simultaneously, like be impatient to start and keep going, but be patient when it comes to sharing it with the world. That's great advice. But, you know, you and I do share a common interest in translated literature. And, you know, again, I'm just going to go, it's January, you know, the show is airing in January, everyone has lots of New Year's resolutions, like I'm going to read more, I'm going to read literature and translation, that shows up on everyone's list. And, you know, you've got some great ideas there. Can we talk about literature and translation? Absolutely. I have to say that when I was a child, um, you know, I I didn't, my my mother tongue was Bengali, but I did not move to Bengal until I was about nine. And so I had no formal training in in that language, though I spoke it with my parents. And so um, I remember that for me, in order to teach me um, Bengali, my parents were like giving me all these books. And I, I started hearing stories and reading a lot of fairy tales and, you know, in Bengali and um, even translated in Bengali, Russian fairy tales and so on. Um, but really, I had a big gap in my, as I went through school, I was not reading regional language literature and I was not reading Bengali literature because my Bengali wasn't as good, except in high school. And I didn't really even know to value it as part of my heritage, you know, because English was so much a comfort zone thing. As I already mentioned, there just weren't enough books written by Indian authors that was on the curriculum and so on. There has always been a very rich heritage of Indian. There are so many languages and there's wonderful literature. We don't talk about it enough, especially in the West, because they have not always been translated as much. And even when they are, they weren't reaching the Western audiences. Um, This year, of course, the International Booker Prize went to uh, Tomb of Sand, Hindi novel by Gitanjali Shri, translated by Daisy Rockwell. It's on my shelf. I haven't even had a chance to read it yet. But I think that is like an impetus. Um, There's been amazing translation work going on in India in the last few years, and it's just growing. And I think this is going to attract more attention than ever before. One of my to-do lists in the new year, once I've settled down with sort of booking my book tour and things like that, um, is basically reading more regional language literature. Um, Bengali I can read in Bengali but other books in in English translations and I really hope that American audiences do that as well because we those of us writing in English shouldn't be the only ones um, you know talking about what's happening in India it's not even it's uh, I mean the whole complexity of the country is not revealed unless you read those regional literatures and translations so those early fairy tales have been a really big uh, influence in terms of getting me to read as a kid and loving stories and so I just wanted to give a shout out to to those and that seems like a really good place to wrap this episode Andrila Mukherjee, thank you so much. The Dream Builders is out now. And you know what? We can all have our reading goals for 2023, but start with the Dream Builders. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really wonderful. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.